Welcome to OnAmp. Oh no, not another marketing podcast. I'm your host, Will Davis. I'm the Chief Marketing Technology Officer and co-founder at RightSource with over 20 years experience in the marketing space. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from strategy to content to MarTech platforms and everything in between. You'll hear honest talk about successes and failures with our guests, plenty of analogies, maybe a couple jokes, and a lot of data points along the way. I think as a CEO, everything matters. And I might make my marketing team crazy because I expect a lot out of them. I need them to be able to operate at the highest level and present their analysis of whatever metrics we're gathering. Welcome. With me today, Smitha Gopal, CEO of Rendia. Uh, Smitha, great to have you here today. Now, before you came on, and, and we've known each other for a while, so finding a fun fact that uh, I already didn't know was very exciting for me, and I actually heard a couple. Uh, one is that you are literally the poster child for your business school. Um, and the true. second I did know, but uh, you graduated high school at 16. So so tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about those couple fun facts. Sure. So I uh, I went to UVA. Go Cavaliers. Still riding that high from winning the tournament this year. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Great comeback after the UMBC situation. Um, so I went to UVA undergrad. I got a finance degree. I wanted to do investment banking. I was more interested in a boutique firm instead of a bulge bracket because I wanted you know, better deal experience, more interaction with senior bankers. And so I knew I didn't want to be in New York. And I didn't really have a preference for where I ended up. And Tiny Boutique Investment Bank recruited me. They happen to be based in Baltimore. So I thought, this is great. I will do this for two years, get a bunch of experience. I will figure out my next move from there. I will probably move to New York or maybe the Bay Area. Um, definitely, I, you know, I'm not going to stay in Baltimore. I'll just, just stop along the way. And I got here. I worked at the company. Everything was great. I uh, I ended up moving on, and I moved on to another company that was in Baltimore. And so my family and my boyfriend were sort of thinking, like, oh, okay, this wasn't really part of the plan. Um, but sure, sure, okay, so it's not two years in Baltimore. It'll be three years. It'll be four years. And now, 15 years later, I'm still here. So I guess Baltimore is one of those places that really sucks you in, and you fall in love with slowly. And one day I woke up, and I just realized this is my this is my home. Yeah, no, that's great. So background in investment banking, and then um, you went and started working for a software company. Yes. And you worked in a variety of areas of the software company, which I think is really interesting and um, probably gave you some good, diverse experience to be able to, in your current role as CEO, understand a variety of the different functions in the business. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in banking, we would meet these clients and we were positioning companies for sale primarily. So it was boutique, you know, M&A advisory. Um, and so I would get the chance to dig in deep on a company's P&L and position it for sale. And I would sometimes have these ideas or I would hear about strategic initiatives that they were midway through. And we were thinking about it through the lens of the best positioning for sale. And then the deal would close and we would move on. And I would 
be bummed out because I wanted to know what happened operationally. Like, was right, that, what's next? <laughs> yeah, was that strategy that you were executing on, was that successful? Would it, you know, did it meet or exceed your expectations? Was it a total flop? And we never knew because it was sort of on to the next. So it was really nice for me to move from that kind of advisory side to an operational role in one company because I got to dig in deep and then stick with it. So it's anyone can have an idea and think like, oh, this is great. We're definitely, this is absolutely going to be a success <laughs> and you get to walk away. Um, and it's it's a totally different set of learning experiences when you get to execute on those ideas and find that some are very successful and others total disaster. And then you get to iterate and you try again and try again. And so I guess I had that perspective of let's just let's just figure some stuff out. We're in this growth stage. We don't we don't really know. There is no best practice, right? Because what we're doing is disruptive. We are approaching customers and we are trying to educate them about why they need our product when they didn't think that they had a need at all. So we're doing a lot of awareness marketing. We are trying to help them connect what they may see as disparate problems or sort of just like facts of life. We're trying to get them to connect those things and see them as all being solvable with our platform. So just by its nature, you feel like it's okay to do things differently. It's okay to try new things. And some of those things will be failures. Some of them will be successes. You don't know up front. You just have to jump in and do your best and figure it out and learn something and then keep going the next day. And so I really got the chance to do that in a lot of different departments and roles. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. There was a lot of flexibility. There was a lot of ability to, you know, try and sometimes succeed and sometimes not and just sort of feel like I was getting better over time. And so for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Rendia, uh, the company you, you know, worked in a variety of departments yes. and, and are now uh, the CEO. Yeah, so the company was founded as Imaginations, and it was founded by an eye doctor and his three children. And the idea was essentially that um, the optometrist realized that he tried to educate his patients every day during their exams, and he had a little plastic eye model, and he would try to explain to them why they needed to take their glaucoma drops, and that would help maintain proper pressure in the eye so that they wouldn't end up with a damaged optic nerve. And so he would have the plastic model and he would try to pull it apart and explain, you know, the front of the eye and the retina and where the optic nerve is. And he could just tell that people were nodding along and they were trying to be polite, but it was not clicking. And he has always been a pretty innovative person. So I think he, at that time, realized like there's there's a role for technology here. There's something that's better than just the plastic model or me scribbling on a piece of paper or just using words, medical jargon, and expecting these patients to understand. So together with his three sons, he founded this company. And so I joined in 2006 when it was still pretty teeny and was based in Towson. And we were we were selling a locally installed software product that doctors mm -hmm. could use with their patients. So it was um, a pretty vast video library. And so as a doctor or a staff person, you could queue up a bunch of videos, play those for the patient to explain whatever, um, ocular anatomy, different diseases, different treatment options. But the patient would just sort of sit and consume the media, ideally in either the waiting room or maybe an empty exam room while they're waiting for the doctor. Back then, it was it was a locally installed software program. So we were mailing out disks. 
It was super media rich. Discs? Are we talking? Yes. Uh, C- CD? CDs. Okay, we're not talking floppies, five and a quarters or anything oh, like that. Oh, no, 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 no. Not that far back. Um, <laughs> I just dated it myself. It would be like there. a thousand of them. Right. <laughs> um, but so Disc it, one of 17. Yes. Yeah. It was like that, though. It was CD one of four, mm-hmm. two of four. And sometimes we would have these spindles of all the CDs that we had burned and sometimes, like, the spindle of disc three or four would go missing, and then you were just oh, no. totally in trouble. Can't mail anything out. <laughs> um, but so we would mail out the, the videos, basically, right? The software at that point was just the container for the video content, and people would get their packages in the mail, and then hopefully they would have the patience to sit and put in the first disc, and then there would be a prompt saying, insert disc two of four, mm-hmm. and put in that second and third and fourth. Um, and it was very high friction on every side, but that was just how the world worked back then. So people didn't have high-speed internet. Nobody was streaming. Mm-hmm. Netflix, if it existed, was in the mailing DVD business. They were doing what you were doing, sending a bunch of discs Exactly. In that was that was the way that <laughs> things were done. Amazon, I think, might have just been selling books, no cloud services at that point. So I've gotten a chance to really see the business evolve as – technology has evolved and as people's expectations and comfort level with technology have totally adapted. And so it feels in some ways, I I will tell stories to our newer employees about how we used to do things. And they look at me like maybe I'm 80 years old and I'm talking about (laughs) like a a telegram or back in the day, we sent out passenger pigeons. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's crazy to think about it retrospectively, how much has changed in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah, I referenced in a meeting a couple months ago um, my first uh, Palm Trio smartphone, Ooh. which had the screen that was you know green and less green. It wasn't yes. full color, yes. but you could actually get email on your phone. Yeah, uh, we actually thought that was great at the time, and now I'm not so sure about getting email on my phone some evenings. Uh, but but yeah, I got looked at like I was from a whole another you know. Mm-hmm. multiple eras past. Mm-hmm. It's like you're talking about World War II. Yeah. Yeah. So so you've overseen this transition from uh, a bunch of CDs in the mail to really a software as a service business. That's a big change for a business. How did you go about doing that? What are some of the things you learned along the way? It was a big change. And, you know, when I talk about it in retrospect, it sounds like We did thing A, and then we shifted to doing thing B, Mm -hmm. Um, and it really wasn't that. It wasn't this linear transition. There were some stops along the way. So for us, first we transitioned in terms of the, the revenue model and the contract model because we sort of had to baby step our customers along, and we sort of needed to wait for technology adoption to catch up to where we were. So first, we switched people from buying a perpetual software license to buying an annual contract, but the software was still locally installed. And that was a big mental shift in terms of our sales team's approach, in terms of the way that we marketed the software. We had to internally think about a different set of metrics. So previously, we had thought about customer acquisition as just being revenue collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were really focused on getting new customers and and building out market share in that way. And whether people had the patience to sit and install all four disks of that software and whether they did it on one computer or 10 computers, we encouraged them to to install it. But if that turned out to be too high friction or mm-hmm. if they just sort of let it sit on a shelf, we didn't have to care all that much about it. 
Um, we provided support, but we it wasn't uh, a metric that we managed to. Right. And so as we shifted to the annual model, suddenly we had to start thinking about that in a totally different way because you don't want somebody to just license your software for one year. You want them to be a long-term customer. For them to be a long-term customer, they need to really adopt and find value. And so suddenly our metrics for success were much more closely aligned with our customers' metrics for success, which really it should have been that way all along, but it it just wasn't top of mind because it didn't need to be top of mind. So just that process of thinking about our customers in a different way and aligning ourselves with their success in, in adoption and, and implementation, that took us a little mm-hmm. while. And then we had to wait a little longer for people to get high-speed internet everywhere in their office right. and to really get comfortable with streaming video content. So it helped that at the same time, people were starting to um, watch YouTube videos. They were starting to stream Netflix shows. It was still something that for our customers, maybe they thought their kids were doing it or they were doing it every now and then, and it wasn't something that they were bringing into their offices. Mm -hmm. So it was still that tension of trying to pull our customers along and trying to convince them, yes, you should get high-speed internet. Yes, you should get more screens. Um, just trust us, just trust us, this is going to pay off. And then the iPad came around and that was awesome for us because suddenly doctors weren't constrained to a desktop computer, which was probably doing double duty and running their electronic health records, right? So now they could have Mm -hmm. a tool that it's portable, you can hand it to the patient, you can have more of an interactive conversation. It feels less like the doctor is distracted by a computer and more like the doctor is using a screen alongside the patient and they are having a shared conversation. They're looking at the same visuals or having a more in-depth and focused discussion. So the, the technology is helping the conversation instead of creating friction or creating a barrier between doctor and patient. Yeah, so that's a lot of change to go through. It's a lot um, of change. And, and the way you talked about stepping that change is really interesting too and first kind of going from a you know, one-time purchase model, perpetual license, then truly looking at a recurring revenue model uh, and ensuring that you have customer success and user adoption really aligned to the success of your customers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then looking at this sort of transformative high-speed internet, people streaming videos, tablets in medical practices. I mean, it's kind of the, the confluence of many different things really all at once. So through all that change, both uh, in your business and you know in the market, um, what roles did marketing and customer success play? Both marketing and customer success became much more important as time went on. Um, customer success became more important because we had to be aligned to the adoption and implementation success of our customers. So we were focused on the same things that they were focused on. Marketing became really important. I, I shouldn't say that it was ever unimportant, but the strategy of marketing really shifted. So initially it had been, let's just expose as many potential clients as possible to the technology. Let's go to these industry events. We'll go to conferences every, you know, every time we can, many weekends every year, and it's about event marketing. That was sort of the old model. In the new model, it was about a lot of different things. In part, it was about educating our existing customer base about why we were making these changes. We had some customers who were perfectly content with the old model, and they Mm -hmm. had already put all of those CDs into the computer that one time, and they felt like they were good. And they thought of our software 
the same way they thought of other capital expenditures, right? So I bought this diagnostic piece of equipment for my office. I bought it two years ago. I think it's going to last me 10 years. I've checked it off my list and mm-hmm. I, I'm good. Right. And in the same way, I bought this these fancy videos and I think that they're going to last me a long time and I am good. They're way better than that model, the eye that I had that I pointed at. So check the box. Exactly. Patient education covered. Exactly. And you guys already came to me with a pretty disruptive idea, which was that I should use something digital. I should use videos instead of just spoken words or illustrations. I agreed. I went along with it and now I'm done. My capacity for further change mm-hmm. is really diminished. Yeah. And I have all these other things that I'm focused on because so many other things are changing specifically in the healthcare marketplace, right? So technology, mm-hmm. like consumer adoption of technology is changing a lot, but then also um, just from a regulatory perspective, this is the era of EHR implementation and really significant government um, sort of subsidies to, to adopt mm-hmm. electronic health records. Um, reimbursement rates are changing, just like the landscape in which they are practicing is shifting. So as a provider, it felt like everything is changing. Um, and there are all these things that kind of feel like ancillary components of running a medical practice that are suddenly creeping up and taking so much of my time when really I got into this field because I want to help people. Mm -hmm. I want to interact with my patients. I just want to provide care and, and go home and not deal with this laundry list of other things that I have to deal with because I'm also the business owner. Um, And so when we figured out that our customers felt that way, we started thinking about content marketing as being a really useful strategy. And so suddenly marketing was not, well, I shouldn't say suddenly. Over time, marketing evolved from being really trade show and event oriented to instead being about Positioning us as a trusted resource to help doctors navigate that complex environment. And then Mm -hmm. as we matured over time, marketing then evolved along with customer success to think about the different personas within a practice. So the decision maker may be the the physician, but the user may be the office manager. Maybe it's the person who's doing marketing. Maybe it's the surgical counselor who is talking with patients before they sign up to have a procedure. And so those people all have their own unique sets of challenges and goals. And mm-hmm. we have insights that we have gleaned from working with thousands of other people in those roles that we can share. And so it took a long time for us to kind of get there. And I would say that it's something that we continue to evolve as we, as our understanding of our customers continues to deepen um, and the insights that we glean from them and that we just glean from, from the industry continue to grow. I think it's it's sort of an ongoing evolution. And then through all this, um, you also started to expand your focus. So originally it was imaginations because yes. the I was the focus. Um, you've gone broader and with that came a, a name change, a rebrand and all the things that go along with that. So, um, you know, you're not afraid to bite off some pretty big things. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Go big or go home, right? <laughs> exactly. So we changed our name. It was something that was a long time coming. So I I run around all the time now and I tell people, if you are thinking that you have outgrown your name, if you are kind of kicking yourself, do not wait. The time to change your name, it was probably five years ago, right? It was probably hmm. the first yeah. time that you had that thought. You didn't do it then. Just do it now. It's only going to get harder over time. And so that was the mentality that led us to the name change. We didn't really want to do it. And we worried that because we had changed so many other things, if we also changed the name, 
-hmm. Would we lose people? Would they think that Rendia is a a brand new company? Would they think that Rendia bought Imaginations and something at the core has really changed, either for the better or for the worse? Mm -hmm. Um, That was absolutely a a concern for us. But we also felt like this problem was just going to get bigger and harder and harder the longer that we waited. So we just ripped off the Band-Aid and did it. And we positioned it in the marketplace, I think, in a good way. So for us, it was not just a name change. It was also a rebrand because we wanted to refocus Um, our value proposition. And so when we started, we were essentially videos with a software platform that contained those videos. And over time, we had expanded into a really comprehensive suite of tools. So certainly the videos are at the core and you can post those videos on social media. You can email them out to patients. You can embed content directly on your website so that you're not directing patients to third-party resources. You don't want them to leave your website. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we also have these really cool interactive tools that are intended to be used in the office. So we have a tool that doctors can use to navigate through the anatomy with the patient and give them that um, true perspective of what they're looking at. They can show disease progression so they can talk about what a disease is like in its earliest stages. And then they can sort of fast forward what it's going to look like if uh, it's not adequately managed, what impact that's going to have on the patient's life. And then we do the same thing in terms of talking about treatment options. So we can show patients, this is how you see now. Um, And if you were to have either a cataract procedure or a refractive procedure, get different glasses, this is what what could change in your vision and how you will see afterwards. And so we really wanted people to take a second look at all of those newer components. Mm -hmm. And so to some extent, it was helpful for us to be able to go back and say, well, allow me to reintroduce my company, right. we're Rendia now, and here's what else you know you may not know. And so it wasn't just a name change. It was also sort of a, a refocusing, a recentering. And it ended up being the right move, but it was it was hard. It was expensive. We spent a long time. Um, we spent a long time having the same conversations over and over. Mm-hmm. I think we underestimated how many times we would have to repeat the message um, for it to really yeah. click for people. Yep, I think everyone does. <laughs> <laughs> Classic optimism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so shifting gears for a minute, I, th- I always think it's interesting when we have CEOs here to talk about, um, you know, what do you care about from a marketing perspective? What really matters? Because marketers spend a lot of their time doing a lot of different things. And in many organizations, you know, aren't really sure, okay, of all the things that I'm doing, maybe one, they know what moves the needle on metrics. Maybe. Sometimes maybe. they don't. Um, and then two, like, what does the person down the hall actually care about? What is the CEO, you know, what matters? So I'll ask you as the CEO, you know, what, in what your matters? organization, what matters? And then I'll have a follow-up, but we'll go one question at a time. I think as the CEO, everything matters. And I might make my marketing team crazy because I expect a lot out of them. I need them to be able to operate at the highest level and present their analysis of whatever metrics we're gathering, right? So I probably don't care how many visitors came to our website last month. I care about whether we are on an upward or downward trajectory, right? And I care about visitor behavior. How many people bounced? How many people went to an interior page? What were the typical paths? Um, Tell me the story of someone who ended up booking a demo with one of our salespeople. 
how did they get there and how many different touches or interactions did they have with us digitally? Mm -hmm. Like, did they just come to the site organically and then they spent a while and then they booked a demo? Did they engage with content over a few weeks or months? Mm -hmm. So I care about the insights that they can provide more than I care about the raw numbers. And I think that that can be hard. But at the same time, I also really care about the details. Um, Ultimately, our brand is one of our most valuable assets. And so everything that we put out there, everything that we publish on our blog, every tweet, every email that we send, everything matters and everything needs to be in a consistent voice. And so I think I might drive my team crazy because sometimes I will ask, you know, tell me, tell me the story of our website. Tell me what we're doing this year and how that compares to last year. So show me, you know, maybe I want to see site traffic over time, but I want you to graph it for me and then annotate that graph with the changes that you have made, right? So if you did a paid, um, like paid search for a while, I want to see that. Um, Or Mm -hmm. if something else external happened, or if there is a spike after we sent out our email newsletter, like, of course there is. But I, you know, show me all of that stuff. But then I will also drill down and say, like, show me the images that you picked for all of our upcoming blog posts, because we're not the company to use cheesy stock photos. We are visual storytellers, and we Mm -hmm. create our own content. And so that needs to be reflected in every message that we send. So I'm both very in the weeds occasionally, but then also (laughs) 40,000 feet up occasionally. Um, And so I think that successful marketing marketers, successful marketers are able to pivot um, and both think about stuff very strategically, but then also make sure that in terms of execution, um, everything is buttoned up and everything is, is flowing and working the way that it should. Yeah. And you have to live in both the macro and the micro. Yeah. And I think that's hard, but it's also once you learn how to do it, it is such a valuable skill in, in, you know, in your career, in your personal life. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's good to be able to shift that way. Yeah. Um, briefly you as a company rely heavily on technology. Um, you know, as a CEO, you're in Salesforce every day. Um, you know, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago that you were actually loading in, in the past, you know, uh, trade show attendee lead list. You were kind of looking at them, making sure no duplicates were being created. So uh, technology, not just a big part of what you offer at Rendia um, to your customers, but also a big part of the way that you uh, operate the business and market the business. Tools like Salesforce and marketing automation, analytics, um, what Trello. value do they bring? Trello for organization. Um, we can give a bunch of other shout outs here. Um <laughs> How do they give you a competitive advantage? How do you feel like they help you operate better, faster, smarter? I think we would not function without our tech stack. Um, It's not just that it lets us do things better. It's that it lets us do things at all. I think that part of my leadership style and part of our cultural shift was really a move towards organizational transparency And that transparency can only exist if people can see what their teammates are are doing. And so I think that it is easy for team members to collaborate and any department can come up with processes to facilitate that. Um, You know, if you are a four-person marketing team, you could survive with just emailing 
Word documents and then hitting reply all. And mm-hmm. in theory, mm-hmm. everyone on the team could just keep getting updated versions of that Word doc. And that, like, that is a way that you could function. Mm-hmm. But no one outside of that team would ever have any clue what you're working on. And maybe they have an insight. Maybe they have a criticism that is highly warranted and should be should be heard. So for us, the only way that we can operate is with full transparency. And the only way that we can have that transparency is through technology. So we are huge adopters of, so we use Google Suite, um, mm-hmm. like Google Dots, Google Sheets, all of that. We use that for everything. We use Trello for everything. And the idea with Trello is not that it's so great for managing deadlines um, or for project management. The idea is that it provides that transparency so that anyone in the company can see what anyone else in the company is working on. Because you've talked about um, collaboration and teams working together. Uh, one thing I'm always interested in is you know marketing and sales and how marketing and sales collaborate, how they work together, um, what works, and then also kind of what you've improved over time there. I think right now our marketing and sales teams are collaborating better than they ever have before. For me, one thing that was important was um, aligning leadership. So I think you can have a, a head of sales and a head of marketing and have those be two different people. But if so, they need to really get along and they need to be comfortable with collaborating. I think that I have seen in a lot of other organizations kind of a culture where sales thinks that marketing delivers garbage leads. Marketing thinks that sales mm-hmm. doesn't follow up on the leads that they are delivering and sure. they're, they're letting stuff drop uh-huh. and there's just this underlying resentment. And so like maybe they are working together, but they don't have fundamental respect for what everyone else is doing. It's that kind of cross finger pointing, right? Yes. Which I know people can't hear, but I'm pointing one finger to the left and one finger to the right and crossing my arms. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. And I think that CEOs can kind of perpetuate that by holding different teams accountable to different metrics if you're only accountable, so if sales is only accountable for the deals that they bring in, I think it's too easy for them to say like, well, my pipeline is terrible because I didn't get enough marketing qualified leads, mm-hmm. right? They are not doing enough in terms of content marketing or whatever. And I think it's, if marketing is only held accountable for certain sort of like marketing metrics, like site traffic or um, conversion rates or like number of demos booked and like not the results, right. I think that then they are incentivized to kind of let garbage people into the funnel, right? If it's just volume and not quality. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say we're perfect at this, but we have this monthly reporting meeting. We call it the marketing meeting. So it's it's Uh sales and marketing. And we talk about all of those metrics and everyone is in the room um, because it's important that they understand what is going on with the other team. They might not think that it directly relates to their day-to-day job, but they at least understand at a higher level, this is what we're thinking about organization-wide, mm-hmm. um, and these are the challenges that your peers are facing. And I think that we're all talking about the same shared metrics then leads to kind of a subconscious shift in mentality about shared responsibility. Because ulti- So ultimately, what we care about is revenue and profit. Right. right? I was going to say you're aligning around revenue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're absolutely aligning around revenue. Um, but in our business, it's not even just revenue that we're booking now, right? So as a SaaS business, we are recognizing contract revenue over the life of the contract. So that's typically one year. Mm-hmm. But we will live or die by our customer retention rate. Mm-hmm. If churn is too high because we sold to the wrong people and sales and marketing were high-fiving because they got all these demos in and all these people said yes, but they fundamentally misunderstood our value proposition and right. they weren't able to adopt. And customer success is then freaking out because they can't 
engage with the customer, they can't onboard them successfully, or the customer had this misunderstanding of level of effort or technology needed mm-hmm. or impact or whatever, and that customer doesn't renew with us, that is worse than if we just didn't bring them on, right? right. Because we expended yep. all our resources over that 12 months. We exactly. lost so much money on that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so over time, as we have become more sophisticated and as we've added those, um, or I, I should say, as we have reduced the barriers and the friction so there's greater transparency, it kind of works out that every team is then aligned around the same goals. So it's attract and retain as many customers as possible. Basically make as many people happy Mm -hmm. as we can. And ultimately that then means those people are going to be better educating way more patients. And we think that that's the societal good that we provide. Yeah, and that's that's much bigger. I mean, dialing all the way back to the beginning, right? That is a lot more effort, but a lot more reward than sending four CDs out in the mail because someone bought one time. Mm-hmm. Because they saw something cool when they were at a trade show. Yeah. And they came home. They didn't even really remember. They were in Las Vegas. A lot happened. <laughs> they bought some things. Right. And now they're back Probably to bought work. a lot of things in Las Vegas. <laughs> that, that's a different podcast. So one more question in the time that we have today. I always like to ask this. Um, you've been through a lot of experiences and seen a lot of change. What would the Smitha of today give his advice to an early career Smitha? What have you learned over time? Oh, I have learned over time how many different ways you can be wrong. <laughs> I have been wrong about so many things. Um, and that's okay. I'm not embarrassed about that because that means I tried so many things. Mm-hmm. You got to try. You got to put yourself out there. Um. Okay, so I think Smitha of the past was a little bit too quick to action. And I think it's important to be contemplative. I read an article once about the sacred pause. And it's basically that when someone shares information with you, it's tempting as kind of a type A, high energy, like I'm an ENTJ. I'm a type three Enneagram. Um, <laughs> It is tempting to react quickly and you sort of feel like that's what you should do as a sign of, you know, paying attention and taking taking their words seriously. But actually, it's okay to pause for a beat. It's better to pause for a beat and let it sink in. And what comes out of your mouth next will be much more thoughtful and it will be a better response because you gave your brain just another second to think it through instead of just letting your mouth open and react. Um, so that might be, that's advice that Smith of the past would have taken. Would have taken. Yes. Some of the After other After waiting things, a beat to uh, hear the advice. Exactly. Exactly. Um, other things I wish I could have told myself. I wish I told myself, you know what, don't invest in uh, Adobe Flash as your cloud-based technology. Okay. Uh-huh. It's not going uh-huh. to go so well with Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of other choices that we made because yeah. in the moment we thought it was the best choice. In hindsight, we we wish that maybe we had done something else, but there was no there was no way to know. You know, you kind of have to let things play out. Um, and I think also that Smitha of the past was afraid of failure. I'm much more comfortable with failure now, um, in part because I think it's inevitable, but also I think because if you do it right, if you have an effective postmortem, if you have a good collaborative culture where you don't have um, finger pointing and blaming, instead you just have shared learning, mm-hmm. I think that failure is really beneficial. It helps teams bond. It helps you be a little bit more cautious and thoughtful the next time. 
it helps inform future decision-making. All the problems that we're trying to solve feel like they're new problems. It feels like uncharted territory to some extent. So the best thing that I can do, the best way that I can arm my team is by giving them both the skills and as much prior knowledge as we happen to have, and then the confidence to go try. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll be wrong, and sometimes they'll be they'll be right, and it'll be great. As long as you learn something, it's yeah. worth it. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Well.